Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name's Paul Reismandel, and um, I'm your host for this edition. Uh, this week, it's uh, a short edition of Radio Survivor, because we're actually going to do follow-up on uh, one of the main topics from last week's show. So uh, last week's show is number 77. One of our main guests was Professor Christopher Terry. And uh, he's a professor at the University of Minnesota, and we turn to him when we're looking to analyze and understand uh, the Federal Communications Commission in particular and communications regulation and policy in general. And last week, we had talked with him to learn more about what might be in store uh, with the Trump administration when it comes to communication and telecommunication regulation. And uh, one of the things he took up was to try and guess who might be the new chairman of the Federal Communications Commission under President Trump. And just yesterday, uh, so we're recording this on Tuesday, January 24th, on the 23rd, the Trump administration announced that uh, Commissioner Ajit Pai, who has been currently serving on the FCC uh, during the Obama administration, that he will be elevated to chairman of the FCC. Um, the structure of the FCC is that there are five commissioners, three from the party and the executive. So if you have a Democratic president, you have Democratic, uh, three Democratic commissioners. If you have a Republican uh, president, you have three Republican commissioners. Then you have two from that minority party. Uh, and uh, so that during the Obama administration, obviously, uh, there have been three uh, Democratic commissioners with a Democratic chairman. Now there will be a Republican uh, chairman, Ajit Pai. So he has experience on the FCC. Uh, the, the Trump administration decided not to go and select somebody uh, without experience, at least uh, on, the, on the commission or without regulatory experience. So uh, now it wasn't, you know, uh, Chris wasn't making a, <laughs> a long odds call. There's a lot of discussion uh, happening amongst people to know that, that there was a good chance that Pi would become the new chairman. But now that uh, he is, I decided, gosh, I got to turn back, give uh, Christopher a call and find out what he thinks about uh, the selection and what we should look out for it. And already... You know, it's been about 24 hours now uh, since the since the uh, announcement was made that now that I'm recording this uh, kind of late for release on uh, Tuesday, January 24th. There's been a lot of coverage, but in particular, you know, I wanted to find out from Professor Terry, you know, what should we be keeping our eye on or, or what are some dynamics that maybe aren't being covered so well? in a lot of the press coverage. So that's definitely a reason why we have Chris on the show, because he helps us dig into some nuances and historical details, things he understands by watch, having watched the FCC for so many years that you may not get elsewhere. Without further ado, I'll jump in, and here's my conversation with Professor Christopher Terry. Thanks for uh, joining us for another week in a row here, uh, Christopher. I guess, you know, I mean... You were right. <laughs> we just learned that uh, President Trump uh, has uh, said that he wants to make Commissioner Ajit Pai the uh, the uh, chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. 
You talked a little bit about what that means last week, but I don't know if you could just give us a refresher of what you think this means for uh, communication policy, especially communication policy in the public interest. Well, certainly it's going to be a sort of a revisionist approach to um, communication policy that looks a lot like what we saw in the mid-90s. You're going to have a sort of economic-centric approach to solving problems with sort of the laissez-faire market-first economics approach that we saw uh, under deregulation in the late 80s and then especially under competition-era regulation in the mid-90s. And so for folks who are concerned about media ownership in particular, concerned about, uh, I mean, we're already seeing consolidation happening in, in, especially now in sort of the digital sectors, right? Comcast owning uh, Universal NBC, uh, Verizon, uh, you know, buying Yahoo. Uh, what should folks be on the lookout for? What should they be concerned about or should they be activating about? Well, I think we're going to need to watch the commission pretty closely for the next six months or so uh, until the Trump administration works out a number of lower level appointments. You're going to have an odd situation at the commission where you have two to one in terms of Republican versus uh, sort of more liberal leaning uh, commissioners. Um, bringing Pi on board as chair saves a big step in the process in that he's essentially being promoted from commissioner to chair. That saves a confirmation hearing in the Senate and allows for the commission to have a quorum to do business. And that's a big deal because Commissioner Pai and Commissioner O'Reilly certainly see eye to eye on almost everything. In terms of media ownership specifically, um, a lot will have to depend on what happens in the Third Circuit with the Prometheus Round 4 but certainly at the top of the list of things that will be going away, uh, however that shakes out, will be the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule. Uh, it's an old rule. Um, you know, There's arguments for it and against it, but it's certainly going to be at the top of the list of things that go away. But what I think you're more likely to see, especially until a full commission is reconstituted with five commissioners, which might be a while at this point, um, what you're likely to see is the return of the use of the dreaded waiver the waiver is a way to allow for consolidation to happen that exceeds the rules while the commission sort of teeters and totters and decides what the new rule is going to be. Uh, much of the consolidation that was allowed to happen, especially after 1998 but before 2005, was wavered into existence while the FCC kind of played its fiddle Nero style. Uh, while they were trying to sort out what the ownership rules were going to look like going forward. And I would suspect that the commission will use waivers as justification using the idea that there are only three commissioners at the commission. We'll use waivers to implement rules. We'll do it on an adjudicatory basis, and then we'll eventually worry about what those consequences mean down the road. And that could happen very quickly. Um, I mean, it only takes a majority vote of the commission to grant a waiver in those types of situations. And certainly the historical precedent here is not good. And so a waiver is sort of a case-by-case, get-out-of-jail-free card. That's, is, that, is that correct? It would be the case if, um, let's say, I owned a radio company and I wanted to merge in a particular market 
where it might exceed the uh, the current rules, I could uh, present a case to the commission that says, well, in this particular case, because the economics of the situation, uh, this is in the public interest. Is that what you mean by a waiver? Yes, it is a it is a case specific situation. But what what's happened in the past is that the agency has used them to sort of forward push policy by granting a set of waivers and then saying, well, there's no real problem here. We can just adapt to this level. Part of the equation here, of course, is sort of some geeky regulatory law in that agencies make rules and enforce rules in two ways. One is through a sort of generic rulemaking process. That's a sort of hard line, broad spectrum approach to making rules. But the agencies also have the authority to do what's known as an adjudication. That's an individual decision. And what the FCC did in the late 90s was used waivers as adjudication decisions in mergers to sort of keep the process going as it bogged down in process. Got it. So even if they can't address the rules right away and if if the FCC is currently constituted as, as three members, three commissioners, um, if the two from the Republican Party, O'Reilly and Pi, can't sort of force a more deregulatory agenda from rewriting the rules, they can kind of affect it um, again on a case by case basis as the as particular uh, circumstances may arise with with different companies. Certainly, and I suspect that'll actually be the case. Um, as you know, I'm usually pretty right on my calls when it comes to the FCC's moves because I've been studying them for a long time. But it'll actually be substantially easier for Pi and O'Reilly to put an agenda into place using waivers in specific cases, and not just for media ownership. Things like net neutrality, it takes a Herculean effort to repeal rules that are on the book and that have been sustained on judicial review the way the net neutrality rules are. But instead of enforcing them, they can just grant waivers to individual companies in every situation that comes up and essentially unenforce the rule that way. And I think that's what you're likely to see, especially over the first six months of the year, depending on how long it takes to reconstitute a full commission. So you expect that when uh, things come back to having five members, and, and traditionally, right, it's three from the uh, party and the executive, so the uh, uh, you know the, the Republican administration, and then two from the party and the minority, uh, the Democrats. Once they get to that, then you might see an agenda to rewrite or repeal the net neutrality rules, the open internet rules that were passed. Was it two years ago now? Years ago now, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's what I keep, you know, reading uh, already in in the press coverage uh, that's come out so far in just the the twenty four hours or so since uh, the administration uh, said that they that uh, they wanted uh, Pi to be the the chairman. Um, and as I recall, even in the open internet rules, there's quite a few circumstances. I mean, the, the, being able to sort of uh, work with waivers and to hear circumstances. You know, on a case by case basis, that's already written into the rules, as I recall. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, one of the big criticisms I had of the rules at the time is that they were they could essentially be waived at any point for just about any reason. Well, you've sort of given the the leadership here the sort of mechanism to defeat this rule, you know, without actually having to go through the process of removing it. But this is the point in which every time we talk, I have to remind you that Congress is always the X factor that's out there. Um, you know, with Republican control and the ability to waive, you know, enforcement of essentially any rule at any time, Congress doesn't have a big incentive to confirm two more commissioners 
and constitute the full commission can sort of get get what they want out of the equation that way. But when they get around to it and do constitute a full commission, net neutrality broadband privacy rules that came out are going to be at the top of Pi's list for things to be taken off the books. And a simple act of Congress at this point signed by the president could make that happen in a much more permanent fashion than we've seen. We've been fighting over net neutrality since essentially 2005. Uh, even under Chairman Powell, there was an attempt to implement some basic net neutrality provisions. But Commissioner Pai himself was very famous for standing there with a copy of the rules and sort of saying, I can see these, but you can't, in an effort to defeat them even before they were voted on. So that's going to be at the top of his list. I'm sure media ownership certainly isn't high on his priority list. He is a vocal opponent of the new newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule. But I would certainly think that things like JSA's joint service agreements and things like that that sort of took a back seat in the Wheeler Commission will probably come back on the table, especially through the waiver process over the next few months. And and just uh, for people who don't you know aren't aren't familiar with the industry jargon like a, a JSA a joint service agreement what is that just uh, very briefly it's a sneaky way to get around um, an ownership limit what you do is you make an agreement so you own a station and I own a station I you continue to own the station but you give it to me to operate and we have an agreement where I operate both stations and you just retain ownership on paper. Um, it's a sneaky way to consolidate without actually having to transfer the ownership of the station, um, you know, because it's really then about the control and who's producing the content. These have become exceedingly common in local television where stations will operate on a JSA and share their newscasts, their local newscasts. Very okay. common. Place. Um, and something I'm hoping to do some research on later this year after the dust settles with the transition here. Yeah, I've definitely seen it in my local market where like the CW affiliate has the same uh, newscast as the Fox affiliate. Just one runs it at nine and the other one runs it at 10. Yeah, very uh, common. Even Milwaukee, where I'm from originally, has a station that runs the CBS newscast at nine that will then run at 10 o'clock on the, you know, on the secondary station and so on. Very, very common process now. Um, the Wheeler Commission tried to sort of put a clamp on that and not have such bright line rules in approving JSAs. But uh, that process kind of stalled out towards the end there. So, and Commissioner Pye was certainly in favor of the JSA approach. Yeah, got it. And a thing that I've also seen uh, in the last uh, 24 hours come through, I don't know if this is something you'll be able to comment on, is that there's some some uh, suggested revisions to public inspection file requirements um, where uh, there want to be changes where uh, someone who is on, say, the board of directors of a nonprofit that owns a radio license, uh, their ownership interests in other broadcast properties – um, that seems to be something which now maybe the FCC is going to go do away with. They won't have to report that anymore. Is that something you've caught up with at all? Yeah, um, I haven't seen the formal proposal for it yet. Um, the This has been on and off the books periodically over over the years. Um, in terms of this, this really boils down to a 300-level FCC document that's filed and is of dubious value when it's filed. They're trying to clean up the reporting requirement, and of course, while they're doing that, they're going to take some data off the table in terms of those things. Um, 
I'm not as concerned about that as I am about the public file cleanup uh, requirement that the FCC is trying to push right now, which would mandate that it wouldn't be required for stations to post all of their local correspondence with their local audience in their public file. Um, that's a significant change in the sort of the public interest, convenience, and necessity requirements of the public file going back all the way to about 1934. And that's a, a big deal because if that information isn't public, there's no way to sort of make an external license challenge when a license comes up. And what I'm talking about here is that I run a station, you're not real happy with the content on that station, and you write me some correspondence. Any letter you wrote me about what we were doing or how we were doing it or what news we were covering was supposed to be put into the public file. I know when I worked back in radio, that was part of my my job was to actually handle some of that content, make sure it made it into the public file. The provision that they're proposing would say that you wouldn't actually have to post that material now that the public file is substantially more accessible online. Yes. I mean, I, I in, in the past had to do it too. And, and I'm, Please correct me if I'm wrong. I believe because often these questions come to us after we we talk about this issue. Um, at the moment, the uh, public correspondence folder that only applies to commercial stations, correct? That's correct. Yeah, so it only applies to commercial stations, and it so very specifically does not apply to low power FM stations in particular, which um, have much diminished uh, public file requirements compared to full power non-commercial stations and full power commercial stations. And, you know, for people who maybe aren't aware, uh, you know, the public file is an actual file. Now it's uh, becoming digital. It's going online and will be available at the FCC website, but it still is a file that you can walk into any broadcast station during normal business hours, like nine to five in your local time and request to view, which contains its license. It contains its ownership documents. You can find out who owns it and you're right if it's a commercial station you're supposed to be able to view this correspondence folder all the things that people have submitted um, about the station and its operations that's correct and i don't i mean i suspect that they'll push that through and under sort of the paperwork reduction act uh justification what's the real justification (laughs) what do you think is the real justification it's i mean it's a source for challenges to licenses Mm -hmm. um you know, the station in California that ran the uh, hold your we for a we contest and, you know, where there was a death involved, you know, there's documents in their public file about that situation that would have weighed heavily against the license renewal back in the old days. You know, let's just cut out the middleman and get rid of these things and, you know, make it easier to just send that postcard in and get that license back without actually any sort of review. Got it. And it, so it, because it, it, often it can attest to the station's service of the public interest or even situations in which uh, the station may have broken the rules of broadcast. Or in this case, you know, there was a liability in someone who died because she had uh, acute uh, water poisoning, as it turns out. Um, you know, it's, it's a logical outcome. You know, I hate to say it this way, but it is a logical outcome of what's happened with sort of the record keeping and license renewal process. You know, back, I, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to radio, but back in when I was in radio, I had to go to public ascertainment meetings with the public a couple times a year where we would bring people in from the uh, community. We would talk to them about things that were going on and use that as part of our assessment of how we were doing uh, when we submitted our license renewal process. Um, you know, ascertainment hasn't existed for 
well on 15 years probably at this point. And, you know, the public correspondence file, sort of the next thing to go in that process. And is this uh, a move that's been sort of in the queue for a while or is this all of a sudden because happening now because there's two Republican commissioners and one Democratic commissioner and they can kind of ram it through? Uh, I think the answer to your question there is yes. Um, part of this is that when the with the move to put the public file online, most of which was generated by the interest in political advertising information that's available, um, there was sort of a move to make these things much more accessible. As you pointed out, you used to have to go to the station and request to see the public file. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but public files are routinely a mess. They're often just a drawer or two in a file cabinet. Everything's just kind of chucked in there. And, it, you know, they keep a checklist and they, they would open the file drawer and tell you to you could find whatever you wanted, but, you know, it was in the drawer. Um, you know, with the effort to move these things online made them substantially more accessible. And I think things that often put a station in bad light, such as public correspondence file, it has a lot of negative letters in it, being more accessible than if you had to physically go to the station, certainly part of the impetus for trying to keep it, uh, for getting rid of that information from the public file. And one last question, you know, we've seen, as I sort of mentioned, you know, press coverage now in the last 24 hours since uh, the announcement was made that Pai will be the, the new chairman of the uh, commission. Is there anything that's being left out or is the focus uh, misplaced in some of this coverage in, in sort of mainstream press as well as some of the tech press? I think uh, the one thing that's being highlighted is sort of his position on net neutrality. And I think what's missing is his position on all of the other initiatives that the FCC had going at the end of last year. Um, you know, it's understandable why they're talking about net neutrality. I mean, that's an issue that Pi was very visible on over the last couple of years, especially being opposed to it. But, I, you know, there's I haven't seen a single comment about where he stands on a further spectrum auction, for example. Um, you know, they've sort of uh, stenographered his approach to broadband infrastructure, which is an idea that's now in its near 4,000th day that still hasn't produced a nationwide broadband system. So I understand the focus on net neutrality, but I think, you know, if he's going to be commissioner and he's going to be chair, there's a lot more initiatives at the commission right now that probably need to have some fresh air and sunlight on them as we go forward. Plus, and as, as you pointed out already in this interview, and you've pointed out many times before, a lot of the power still is with Congress, which could choose to completely not just uh, get rid of network neutrality, but to sort of hobble the FCC in future generations from having anything to do with net neutrality like uh, regulation or take action in other uh, regards to a communication policy and management. Um, and that's a place where we should also be keeping our eyes. Yeah, I think Congress doesn't get enough credit. I think the FCC becomes a punching bag for a lot of things that the FCC is told to do. Um, you know, Congress dictates how the agency acts on sort of the macro level, and then the FCC sort of makes the micro decisions that implement congressional will. And I don't know how many articles I've read on media ownership over the years. It's a lot, <laughs> many, many. 
but I rarely see that part of the discussion that that Congress created the environment in which we live now through the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Now, is it all bad? Iggy, mostly, <laughs> but um, you know, the sort of the idealist in me, always trying to look for the sort of the policy opportunities. Congress might see uh, this window of time that they have right now as an opportunity to update some of the 1996 telecommunications legislation, make it a little bit more uh, 21st century in scope. And with Pi at the, at the leader, at sort of the, the head of the commission, it might be an opportunity for them to bring in some new, uh, new regulation. Um, you know, Pi wouldn't necessarily implement it in the way that I would, but at least the basis for some updates to regulation would be there. Remember that the internet is still regulated as if it was a hardline telephone in 1996. And, you know, that's 21 years ago at this point. It's time to think real hard about what we should be doing in that way. So Congress might see this as a policy window and do something positive, but it might we might not see the positive effects of that for some time. Well, Christopher, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to quickly jump on the phone and update us with uh, what is uh, breaking news of a sort. And we, uh, we, we may not look forward to what's going to happen, but I do look forward to talking with you about it. Well, I'll be here and certainly going to be a busy year, I think. So anytime. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks. Yeah. Once again, that is Christopher Terry. He is a professor of media ethics and law at the University of Minnesota. And we call on Christopher whenever we need some extra background, some extra illumination on what's going on at the Federal Communications Commission. And now one thing I want to say before uh, we wrap it up here is, uh, you know, even though this show is ostensibly about radio, we do care about all sorts of communication freedom. Uh, these things are all intertwined. The media system is not about any single medium anymore. Uh, certainly, you know, we talk about internet radio and podcasting, but the lines between between all different sectors and many different companies, uh, they cross. They're very intertwined. And in particular, that's why we worry about network neutrality, which is uh, the policy which uh, currently is in, in effect with the Federal Communications Commission, which... Uh, restricts the ability of our internet service providers from filtering what it is we as customers can see on the internet. And this includes uh, restricting their ability to allow one company to offer us something perhaps at a lower cost to them uh, or to us uh, versus another. So perhaps stops a internet service provider from allowing us a uh, better access to, say, clear channel iHeartMedia radio stations than another radio station, a community radio station via internet radio. And, or, you know, this could be in any sector from uh, from video to regular news, right? It's supposed to be an even playing field as us as internet consumers, as citizens should have equal access to what is out there on the internet. Uh, our internet service provider should not be providing that filter. And as Christopher noted, as we've seen in many uh, pieces of coverage in the last uh, day or so about 
the nomination of, uh, or the appointment actually, of Ajit Pai as the, as the uh, chairman of the FCC. The FCC's uh, open internet rules are probably in the crosshairs. And this can affect radio, this can affect democratic communications, and this is why we cover it and we talk about it here on Radio Survivor. So we'll continue to keep our finger on the pulse and always looking at it from this perspective of grassroots communication and our rights to have good information, reliable information, so that we can become and be really uh, democratic actors. That's what we do here at Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back in one more week. Got any comments? Send it to me and and Eric and everybody. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And if you can help us out, we could really use and anything you can contribute to this cause of us uh, sort of keeping this podcast and this website going at radiosurvivor.com, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. You can make a monthly contribution via our Patreon campaign and help us keep up with this weekly production of the podcast and all that we do. Or if you can make a one-time donation via PayPal, we appreciate that too. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and you'll hear from us next week.